0: Appendix B. The Heat Death of the Universe Physics tells the same story as astronomy. For, independently of all astronomical considerations, the general physical principle known as the second law of thermodynamics predicts that there can be but one end to the universe, heat death, in which the total energy of the universe is uniformly distributed and all the substance of the universe is at the same temperature. This temperature will be so low as to make life impossible, it matters little by what particular road this final state is reached. All roads lead to Rome, and the end of the journey cannot be other than universal death. Sir James Jeans What I argue in this chapter is simple enough. The second law of thermodynamics has become an important intellectual foundation justifying radical pessimism. Those intellectuals and natural scientists who are in the habit of drawing social and philosophical conclusions from natural science, have been unable to escape the pessimistic implications of the Second Law. This growing pessimism now threatens Western civilization. Admittedly, those scientists who devise grand cosmological schemes are always a minority in the profession. Obviously, most scientists are specialists who spend their lives doing very carefully circumscribed experiments in laboratories. They are seldom called upon to make pronouncements concerning the meaning of life, or the long-term implications of their implicit world view. The prominent astrologer Edwin Hubble recognized that scientists are not normally called into the public arena to set forth grand principles and schemes, but he insisted that on major questions such as nuclear war, they must begin to speak out. They can no longer legitimately hide in the shadows of their laboratories. "'Scientists in general are not very articulate. "'They work in comparative seclusion "'and they do not cultivate the art of persuasion. "'But now a new era has emerged, "'and reticence is no longer a virtue.'" Hubble understood that scientists' efforts have had major consequences outside the laboratory. Science is more than a game or a curiosity. It is one of the major religions of modern life. People rely on scientists. Science has produced more and better consumer products, as well as more and better weapons. Science has delivered the goods. People are going to pay attention to any technique or way of looking at the world, which has affected their lives to the extent that modern science has. Thus, when a scientist speaks authoritatively in the name of science, many people will listen, especially non-scientific intellectuals, at least if he speaks in a language even remotely, like the vernacular. Three Religious Worldviews There are three major outlooks that prevail today. They are ancient rivals. The debate among the various proponents of these outlooks has effects in the consideration of entropy and its social, economic and political implications. Jeremy Rifkin and most scientific creationists represent the second outlook. 1. Power Religion this is a religious viewpoint which affirms that the most important goal for a man, group or species is the capture and maintenance of power. Power is seen as the chief attribute of God, or if the religion is officially atheistic, then the chief attribute of man. This perspective is a satanic perversion of God's command to man to exercise dominion over all the creation, Genesis 1 verses 26 to 28. It is the attempt to exercise dominion apart from the covenantal subordination to the true creator God. What distinguishes biblical dominion religion from satanic power religion is ethics. Is a person who seeks power doing so primarily for the glory of God and secondarily for himself and only to the extent that he is God's lawful and covenantally faithful representative? If so... He will act in terms of God's ethical standards and in terms of a profession of faith in God. The Church has recognized this twofold requirement historically and has established a dual requirement for membership profession of faith and a godly life. In contrast, power religion is a religion of autonomy. It affirms that, My power and the might of mine hand have gotten me this wealth. Deuteronomy 8, verse 17. It seeks power or wealth in order to make credible this claim. Wealth and power are aspects of both religions. Wealth and power are covenantal manifestations of the success of rival religious views. This is why God warns his people not to believe that their autonomous actions gained them their blessings. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth... That he may establish his covenant which he swore unto thy fathers as it is this day. Deuteronomy 8, verse 18. It must be recognized that God's opponents also want visible confirmation of the validity of their covenant with death, but God warns them that the wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Proverbs 13, verse b The entry of the Hebrews into Canaan was supposed to remind them of this fact. The Canaanites had built homes and vineyards to no avail. Their enemies, the Hebrews, inherited them. Joshua 24 verse 13 Those who believe in power religion have refused to see that long-term wealth in any society is the product of ethical conformity to God's law. They have sought the blessings of God's covenant while denying the validity and eternally binding ethical sanctions of that covenant. In short, they have confused the fruits of Christianity with the roots. They have attempted to chop away the roots, but preserve the fruits. 2. Escapist Religion This is the second great tradition of anti-Christian religion. Seeing that the exercise of autonomous power is a snare and a delusion, the proponents of escapist religion have sought to insulate themselves from the general culture, a culture maintained by power. They have fled the responsibilities of worldwide dominion, or even regional dominion, in the hope that God will excuse them from the general dominion covenant. The Christian version of the escapist religion is sometimes called pietism, but its theological roots can be traced back to the ancient heresy of mysticism. Rather than proclaiming the requirement of ethical union with Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the mystic calls for metaphysical union with a monistic, monistic, Unified God. In the early church, there were many types of mysticism, but the most feared rival religion, which continually infiltrated the church, was Gnosticism. It proclaimed many doctrines, but the essence of the Gnostic faith was radical individualism. It involved a self conscious retreat from the material realm and escape to a higher, pure, spiritual realm through techniques of self manipulation, asceticism, higher consciousness and initiation into secret societies. Gnosticism survives as a way of thinking and acting or failing to act. Even today, as R.J. Rushduni has pointed out, the essence of this faith is antinomianism. Anti, against, nomos, law. Gnostics despise the law of God, but their hatred for the law of God leads them to accept the laws of the state. Rashduni has commented on the persistence of Gnosticism throughout Western history right up to the present. A major feature of Gnosticism is a Gnostic's contempt for time, their unwillingness to try to change external events. Their exclusive concern was salvation of the individual and escape from the external world. In some cases they even had contempt for the material world as well as for morality, as Rush Dooney notes. Open quote. Gnosticism survives today in theosophy, Jewish Kabbalism, occultism, existentialism, masonry and like faiths. Because Gnosticism made the individual, rather than a dualism of mind and matter, ultimate, it was essentially hostile to morality and law, requiring often that believers live beyond good and evil by denying the validity of all moral law. Gnostic groups which did not openly avow such doctrines affirmed an ethic of love as against law, negating law and morality in terms of the higher law and morality of love their contempt of law and of time manifested itself also by a willingness to comply with the state. The usual attitude was one of contempt for the material world, which included the state, and an outward compliance and indifference. A philosophy calling for an escape from time is not likely to involve itself in the battles of time." The basic idea lying behind escapist religion is the denial of the Dominion Covenant. The escapist religionist, believes that the techniques of self-discipline, whether under God or apart from God, Buddhism, offer power over only limited areas of life. They attempt to conserve their power by focusing their ethical concern on progressively, regressively, narrower areas of personal responsibility. The true believer thinks that he will gain more control over himself and his narrow environment by restricting his self-imposed zones of responsibility. His concern is self, from start to finish. His attempt to escape from responsibilities beyond the narrow confines of self is a program for gaining power over self. It is a religion of works, of self-salvation. A man humbles himself, admits that there are limits to his power and therefore limits to the range of his responsibilities, only to elevate self to a position of hypothetically god-like spirituality. Escapist religion proclaims institutional peace peace at any price. Ezekiel responded to such an assertion in the name of God. They have seduced my people, saying, Peace, and there was no peace. Ezekiel 13 verse 10a. Patrick Henry's inflammatory words in 1775 were taken from Jeremiah. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah 6 verse 14. This rival religion proclaims peace because it has has little interest in the systematic efforts that are also required to purify institutions as a prelude to social reconstruction. In short, escapist religion calls for the flight from the world, and because man is in this world, it calls for a flight from humanity. Its advocates may hide their real concern, the systematic abandonment of a world supposedly so corrupt that nothing can be done to overcome widespread cultural evil by appealing to their morality of sharing Christ to the world or building up the church rather than rebuilding civilization. But their ultimate concern is personal flight from responsibility. It is a revolt against maturity. 3. Dominion religion This is the orthodox Christian faith. It proclaims the sovereignty of God the reliability of the historic creeds, the necessity of standing up for principle, and the requirement that faithful men take risks for God's sake. It proclaims that through the exercise of saving faith and through ethical conformity to God's revealed law, regenerate men will increase the extent of their dominion over the earth. It is a religion of conquest, conquest through ethics. The goal is ethical conformity to God, but the results of this conformity involve dominion, over lawful subordinates, over ethical rebels, and over nature. This is the message of Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 to 14. It is also the message of Jesus Christ, who walked perfectly in God's statutes and in God's spirit, and who then was granted total power over all creation by the Father. Matthew 28 verse 18 I am not speaking here of Christ as the second person of the Trinity, who always had total power. I am speaking of the incarnated Christ, who as the perfect man gained total power through ethical conformity to God and through his death and resurrection. Dominion religion recognises the relationship between righteousness and authority, between covenantal faithfulness and covenantal blessings. Those who are faithful in little things are given more. This is the meaning of Christ's parable of the talents. The process of dominion is a function of progressive sanctification both personal, individual, and institutional, family, business, school, civil government, etc. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 to 14. Covenantal religion is always openly, forthrightly creedal. It has a public theology. Power religion and escapist religion may or may not be openly creedal. Nevertheless, every worldview has a creed even if that permanent creed states only that there is no valid creed. Creeds are inescapable concepts. It is never a question of creed versus no creed. It is a question of which creed. We must understand, however, that power religion seldom announces itself as an inescapably creedal religion, although communism and Nazism have been exceptions to this general rule. In the historic environment of the liberal West, Power religion's advocates have seldom announced their intentions openly until the final phases of their capture of institutional power. In contrast to covenantal creed or religion is Gnosticism, both old and new. rushduni has pointed out that Gnosticism has generally been hostile to creeds. Open quote. Creeds too obviously revealed its departure from and hostility to the faith. It was much more effective to affirm the Apostles' Creed, and then to reinterpret it in terms of Gnosticism. This, from Gnosticism on through Neo-Orthodoxy, has been a favoured method of heresy. Gnosticism is a rival religion. Rushduni continues, Gnosticism was in essence humanism, the glorification of man. In humanism, man makes himself ultimate by undercutting the ultimacy of God. The vaguer the doctrines of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost were made... The more clearly man emerged as a sovereign and man's order as the ultimate order. Unquote. Religious worldviews govern scientific interpretation. These three outlooks still divide men. In this book, I primarily deal with two rival versions of the escapist religion, and then I offer an alternative, the dominion ethics religion. I operate with this presupposition men are either self consciously under God and over nature or else they are self-consciously in rebellion against God and under nature. The modern power religionist wants to place most men under the control of a scientific elite, which is a part of nature, while the humanist escapist religionist, very often a mystic, wants to see all men living in harmony with nature and each other without the element of human power anywhere in society. The history of man can be understood in terms of the increasing epistemological and ethical self-consciousness of man. Therefore, in our day, the conflict between these two rival worldviews, power versus escape, has become sharper and less easily deferred. Historically, Christianity has been influenced by all three outlooks power religion, dominion religion, and escape religion. The medieval quest for power over civil government by the institutional church was, in part, an aspect of power religion. In reaction, Euro- European pietism, the Mennonites and Amish, have been characterised by their withdrawal from politics and culture, escape religion. These two isolated pietist groups have also been pacifist in outlook. Mainstream Christian escapists, pietists, mystics, want only to defer the power versus escape confrontation until Jesus comes back again and solves it by means of his power. This theology of deferral has become visibly bankrupt in the 1980s. Christians of all eschatological views have begun to abandon it, some more consistently than others. The power religion in our day is humanistic elitism, including communism, which has as its goal autonomous man's conquest of nature, including mankind. It often misuses the intellectual discipline of science in this effort. It is opposed by the escapist religion, as well as by the ethics-based dominion religion. The two forms of the escapist religion that are most prominent in the United States today are modern Christian pietism and some, though not all, forms of the New Age movement, the bliss-seeking mystics and miracle-seeking magicians, not the political activists. Implicitly both are opposed to the idea that legitimate long-term progress is possible prior to the coming of Christ in power, fundamentalism, or the coming of Christ consciousness within humanity, New Age. Christian Greek instruction offers as an alternative a dominion concept of long term scientific, economic, and all intellectual progress, which can overcome most, though not all, of the limits placed by God on his creation as aspects of his curse. It offers hope through covenantal faithfulness to God's law. Nick Herbert argues that the scientific community's view of reality eventually seeps out and down to the common man. This view of physical reality will eventually influence the way we view social and political reality. Open quote. For better or worse, humans have tended to pattern their domestic social and political arrangements according to the dominion vision of physical reality. Eventually, the cosmic view trickles down to the most mundane details of every life. Unquote. I would argue, on the contrary, that this is what scientists prefer to believe, but that the reality is far different. The dominant religious worldview establishes what cosmic vision is acceptable for scientists to believe. There is always interaction, but the primary motivation comes from the pulpit, the old boy network, the newspaper staff assignment room, and party headquarters, not the laboratory. It is Jeremy Rifkin's tactic to pretend that Herbert's view is correct, that what scientists believe about the universe will soon reshape our social and political world. He is a dedicated propagandist and he seeks to cover his implicitly political program with a scientist's white smock. Pessimism. What I argue in this appendix is that some, though not all, members of both the scientific creation movement and the more mystical proponents of the New Age movement have promoted an explicit pessimism concerning human progress. New Age mystics conceal this pessimism because they usually focus on the short-term evolutionary leaps of being. But one man, Jeremy Rifkin, is quite open in his presentation of the case for entropic pessimism, and I focus on his arguments in this book. I also argue that modern rationalistic, humanistic power seekers and profit seekers also ultimately share in this pessimism, but their innate pessimism is suppressed because of their faith in either scientific planning or free market productivity. The power religionists have no long-term cosmological hope, and the more consistent ones admit this. The Christian escapist religionists profess no short-term cosmological hope, and they appeal only to the long-term hope of cosmological redemption and total transformation. The New Age mystics have no long-term hope, not much short-term hope, and refuse to admit either. Rifkin has argued that our view of nature gives us our sense of meaning, When we search for understanding concerning our personal final end, we turn to nature. The fact is, we human beings cannot live without some agreed-upon idea of what nature and life are all about. When we ponder what our personal fate might be after the last breath of life is extracted, or when we try to imagine what existed before existence itself, we are likely to become paralysed with doubt. Our concept of nature allows us to overcome these ultimate anxieties. It provides us with some of the answers, enough to get along. A concept of nature, then, is more than just an explanation of how living things interact with one another. It also serves as a reference point for deciphering the meaning of existence itself. Unquote. What I argue is exactly the opposite. Our view of our final end is what gives us our view of nature. Despite his long-winded critique of modern natural science, especially Darwinism, Rifkin assumes... The Darwinian Timescale and the Darwinian Theory of Origins, he assumes a vision of last things, eschatology, which he claims is provided by modern science. What he does not mention is that this view of modern science was derived from men who had a religious impulse to escape God's final judgment. The textbook version of thermodynamics. What have scientists said about the second law of thermodynamics? They have said a great deal, but most of what they have said is confined to textbooks with scholarly articles thrown in as an extra bonus. The standard thermodynamics textbook is filled with elegant mathematical equations and suggested experiments. The authors of these college-level textbooks seldom digress into discussions of the cosmic implications of the science of thermodynamics. They just present the technical material, usually within the context of mechanical engineering or statistical mechanics. Here is a standard description of the second law of thermodynamics. Open quote. When a system containing a large number of particles is left to itself, it assumes a state of maximum entropy, that is, it becomes as disordered as possible. Unquote. We must understand that this disordered state, maximum entropy, is always structured by certain fixed limits. It is randomness within an ordered physical environment. Another textbook statement is important because it presents the view of the second law that Jeremy Rifkin accepts as the agreed-upon foundation of Western science. What I will argue later in this book is that Rifkin has not misled us with respect to what physical scientists have taught, but he has misapplied a fundamental doctrine of science. Here is the definition. Open quote. Closely associated with the concept of changes in entropy is the second law of thermodynamics. One statement of the second law is, the total amount of entropy in nature is increasing. Although we can pick out many natural processes that may involve increases in the degree of ordering, for example the precipitation of salts in salt lakes or the growth of living organisms, other processes are taking place that decrease the order of nature, for example the evaporation of water or the decay of organisms. The overall effects of the latter processes appear greater than of the former, in the part of the universe we observe. Another way in which the second law is stated is, in any spontaneous change, the amount of free energy available decreases. This is one way of saying that natural processes go downhill. A familiar example of the second law is that heat cannot pass from a colder to a hotter body without the action of some external agency, The authors have covered their academic backsides with the qualification in the part of the universe we observe. They do not explicitly argue that for every local decrease in disorder, decrease in entropy, there must be an ever greater increase in disorder for the universe as a whole. They just state that in any part of the universe we observe, this is what we find. Rifkin universalizes the process, so for that matter do most other scientists. They have done so ever since Rudolf Clausius first formulated the second law in 1850. A textbook account informs a student that when a gas is in equilibrium, with its molecules randomly bouncing against the walls of a container, a container through which energy does not flow, a hypothetical condition that is never achieved in the real world, the experimenter can draw some rigorously scientific conclusions. The second law officially applies only to this hypothetical and impossible condition, a perfectly closed system in equilibrium. This is why the main branch of the science of thermodynamics is called equilibrium thermodynamics. This is the thermodynamics of the textbooks. A gas is capable of producing work under certain conditions, meaning that it can lift a weight or move an object in a particular direction or heat a room. To get a container of gas that is in equilibrium to do this, a spark or some other external catalyst is introduced. This destroys the original equilibrium condition of the gas. After this energy-releasing change has taken place, the new equilibrium condition of the gas or its resulting chemical products will be capable of less work. While scientists can state this principle of physics in many different ways, this is the meaning of the second law of thermodynamics. This law was discovered early in the 19th century as a result of observations of pumps. It was observed that heat transfers only in one direction, from a warmer object to a cooler object. This heat transfer can perform work, but once performed, the heat will not flow from the cooler object back to the warmer object. So the work cannot be done again. In short, there is directionality in heat loss. Consider a textbook example of a weight suspended by a rope on a pulley. The man holding the other end of the rope grows tired, and he lets go of the rope. The weight drops to the floor, and its impact briefly spreads heat, speeded up molecules, throughout the floor. The weight is now sitting on the floor. A constant temperature for the weight, air and floor is achieved when the overall temperature is in equilibrium, a condition of randomness meaning a random distribution of heat within the confines of the room. If the temperature of the room floor and weight is now in equilibrium, the second law of thermodynamics states that the weight will not suddenly rise to the ceiling because of the energy supplied by the room, with the room somehow spontaneously growing colder and with the decrease in the room heat taking the form of a gust of wind that suddenly lifts the weight, warming it in the process. In short... Heat is spontaneously transferred only from the warmer object to the cooler. Quote. Henry A. Bent, a chemist at the University of Minnesota, has made calculations which show that it is more likely for a tribe of wild monkeys punching randomly on a set of typewriters to turn out Shakespeare's complete works 15 quadrillion times in succession without error than is the conversion at room temperature of one calorie of thermal energy to work. So far, the second law of thermodynamics does not appear to be the foundation of a new world view, but it is. It is the foundation of a powerful, intellectually compelling world view, one which is radically pessimistic. The Heat Death of the Universe If heat is transferred only from the warmer to the cooler, then eventually the temperature of the universe will be equalised, if the universe is a closed system. Virtually all modern scientists operate on the assumption that it is a closed system, although they cannot prove this. When the temperature of all objects at last is equal, no more work will be possible. This in fact is the scientific definition of at last. It is the modern scientific definition of the end of time. Heat flows one way only. When the fires of the suns of the universe have been extinguished and no more heat energy flows into the cosmic heat sink of space, The randomness of bouncing molecules will then overwhelm every sense of directionality in the universe. Time will end, for time is directional. This is the legendary future condition called the heat death of the universe. We now have gone from tightly defined laboratory experiments to a theory of the extinction of the universe. Is this intellectual jump legitimate? The non-scientist intuitively accepts the jump but this may be because he has been told endlessly by scientists that it is not only legitimate, it is inescapable. If heat really goes from warmer to cooler, then eventually everything in the universe will be at the same temperature. Work will then cease. This seems to follow from the initial statement of the second law, even though the second law officially applies only to closed systems in equilibrium. The layman accepts this conceptual leap for he assumes that the universe is a closed system which is headed for equilibrium, meaning a world of random, directionless and therefore timeless change. But is the layman's understanding correct? Have serious competent scientists in the field of thermodynamics made this leap of faith? The answer is yes. In fact, one of the founders of thermodynamics came to this conclusion in 1865, Rudolf Clausius. Clausius's Theory Rudolf Clausius formulated an early statement of the Second Law in 1850, and he specifically called it the Second Law of Thermodynamics. He also invented the word entropy. He argued that whenever there is a closed system, it is either in random equilibrium state, or else it becomes increasingly random. He called this equilibrium state entropy. Entropy is therefore a characteristic of a physical system. The lower the entropy of a closed system, the greater the order. A textbook puts Clausius' law in bold face. Open quote. The entropy of an isolated system never decreases. This statement is generally referred to as the entropy principle. Unquote. Another physicist states that open quote, the entropy of a closed system tends to remain constant or to increase. Close quote. In short, the road to universal randomness is a one-way street. Maybe. Why maybe? Because of the outside possibility that at some point in the future, the universe may begin to contract. That would decrease entropy by decreasing the number of possible states for matter. Like a collection of marbles in a shrinking box, the number of different locations possible for any given marble would be reduced. The system as a whole would become less random. Thus, a cautious physicist writes, open quote, 50 years ago it was common to say that the entropy of the universe is increasing, which may very well be true. This is a cosmological question. The Big Bang models of the expansion of the universe imply an increase in the entropy at the present epoch. If the universe contracts at a later epoch, the entropy will probably decrease, unquote. Popular writer and chemist Isaac Asimov warns, open quote, On the basis of our observations and experiments, we can say exactly nothing about the relationship between entropy and a contracting universe, unquote. We are free to suppose that entropy will decrease during contraction, he says, but this implies that we are equally free to suppose that it does not. In any case, today it seems unlikely there is sufficient matter in the universe to enable it to contract in the future. But why does it matter what happens to matter? Asimov speculates that if the contraction takes place, it may take 500 billion years for the universe to, open quote, come to a halt about halfway to heat death, unquote, and then another 500 billion years to the creation of a new compressed cosmic egg. Who cares? Yet even in a textbook, a scientist thinks that men, including scientists, do care. Open quote. Life in a forever expanding universe seems less attractive than in one which is closed. For this and other less psychologically motivated reasons, astronomers are still looking for additional matter in the vast expanses of the universe." It's about time. The reason why people care what happens to the universe is difficult to explain, but I think it is closely related to the psychic need in man for eternal life. If man's work survives, then a part of man survives. Like the schoolboy who carves his initials on a desk, like the juvenile delinquent who spray paints his first name on a wall, and like authors who write books, the scientist wants to leave traces that his work is not in vain. History will judge, a man believes. But what if history dies? Who or what will then judge man? A sovereign God? That thought is just not acceptable. Something more impersonal is sought after by rebellious man to serve as cosmic judge. That impersonal cosmic judge is time. But if the increase in entropy is time's arrow, then what happens to time if entropy finally reaches its theoretical limit in cosmic randomness? The judge dies. Judgment is intimately bound up with the question of meaning. The British humanist and mathematician philosopher Bertrand Russell put it this way in 1903. All the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand." Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Unquote. Mankind has only a firm foundation of ultimate despair to build upon. Heat death will snuff out all his efforts and all his self generated autonomous meaning. This was Clausius's legacy. He was the first to argue for the inevitable heat death of the universe. Few scientists have dared to challenge him. Instead, they generally ignore the issue. They write textbooks that judiciously avoid raising it. Another great physicist, Ludwig Boltzmann, who eventually did challenge Clausius' theory, initially refused to disagree with him in public. Boltzmann addressed Austria's Imperial Academy of Science in 1886. Open quote. All attempts at saving the universe from this thermal death have been unsuccessful. And to avoid raising hopes I cannot fulfil, let me say at once that I too shall here refrain from making such attempts. Quote. At this point I need to cover some technical material. I do not expect every reader to follow these arguments closely. I am including this section so that students and scholars will recognise how important the concept of cosmic time is in the worldview of modern science, and how important to science's concept of cosmic time the concept of entropy has become. Science textbooks seldom consider such questions in detail. Christian textbooks had better consider them in the future in much greater detail. We are now approaching the soft underbelly of modern science, its despair concerning the future. Linear time versus cyclical time. I know of no more brilliant and incisive historian of science than Stanley Jarkey. His book Science and Creation, 1974, is nothing short of a classic. He discusses in considerable detail the impact that the second law of thermodynamics has had on premier scientists of the late 19th century. There was no escape from the cosmological implication of Sardi-Curno's observations of heat pumps and his long-neglected 1824 conclusion concerning heat loss. Open quote. The cosmological implication of the loss of a part of the utilisable energy in every physical process was spelled out by Lord Kelvin, William Thompson Gary North, as early as 1852. Two years later, Helmholtz himself appraised Carnot's principle as a universal law of nature, which radiated light into the distant nights of the beginning and the end of the history of the universe. In 1865, Clausius summed up the second law of thermodynamics in the now-famous statement The Entropy of the Universe Tends Towards a Maximum. After that, only a few years passed before two theologically-minded Scottish physicists, B. Stewart and P. G. Tate, concluded that the law of entropy proved it absolutely certain that the minimum and maximum entropy of the universe represented its beginning and end, unquote. Jarky makes the very important point that every attempt to overcome the logic of Clausius' position has, open quote, implied the notion of a universe capable of restoring in endless cycles the energy dissipated across the endless expanse of space, close quote. Jarki cites the arguments of W.J.M. Rankine, one of the founders of thermodynamics, that the dissipated energy might create new stars and planetary systems. According to Rankine's conception, the universe consisted of cosmic compartments in any one of which either the reconcentration or the dissipation of energy was going on at any time. Unquote. This does not make better sense a century later. Nevertheless, Jarkey writes, Whatever one may think of Rankine's speculations, he at least faced with frankness a real problem instead of trying to talk it away or give it the silent treatment. A lot of scientists still play the academic game called sweep this implication under the rug. Boltman's subsequent attempt Jarkey recognizes the similarities between Rankine's view and the one articulated by Boltzmann two years before he committed suicide and 18 years after his lecture in which he had not decided to challenge Claudius' theory of the heat death of the universe. In 1904, Boltzmann argued that within the framework of a universe that is already in equilibrium, there can be pockets of randomly appearing order. This theory was an extension of his theory first articulated in his lectures on gas theory, published in two sections in 1896, In 1898. In that work, he had abandoned the idea that time is linear. In any case, we would rather consider the unique directionality of time given to us by experience as a mere illusion arising from our specially restricted viewpoint. He was the founder of statistical mechanics, formulating a theory of gigantic fluctuations within a universe already in equilibrium a theory which required him to give up the very idea of linear time. Why did he do this? Because so powerful and threatening was Clausius's hypothesis of the heat death of the universe that Boltzmann was desperate to find an alternative, no matter how incoherent and implausible. This is science at its worst. He had no evidence to point to. Nothing. He had only some mathematical expressions of the theory and a desire to escape the rule of the second law. Jarki's assessment on, is on target. Open quote. The saving grace of the Boltzmann cosmology was that its most special features were relegated to the realm of the unobservable, to the realm of the infinitely distant. Unquote. In other words, no one could test his hypothesis. Today we find few supporters of Boltzmann's theory. Not that scientists wouldn't like to support it. It does offer a possible solution to a difficult problem, an explanation of biological life, a clearly anti-entropic aspect of the universe. Life seems to violate the prediction of increasing cosmic disorder and randomness. But Boltzmann's theory breaks down, or so argues physicist Don Kelly. Boltzmann's fluctuation hypothesis suggests that the universe is in equilibrium but that the portion which we observe is part of a gigantic fluctuation, the granddaddy of all accidents. At first sight, the argument for such a hypothesis seems to be a strong one. Some sort of fluctuation is required to ensure the existence of observers, you and me, that is, biological development requires special conditions, conditions of a distinctly non-equilibrium nature. Thus, the very fact that such biological development has occurred, that I write and you read seems to be strong evidence for the fluctuation hypothesis. However, the argument is unsound. It is enormously more likely that such a fluctuation would occur over a small volume, say the size of our solar system, and leave the rest of the immediate universe in equilibrium. To pursue the traffic analogy, being involved in an accident is not unusual, but we would generally be able to see beyond the wreckage and discern the equilibrium flow of traffic. The chance that the fluctuation hypothesis is true is less than the likelihood of an accident involving every car on the road today. Such states of chaos seem most unlikely. Nevertheless, scientists are playing with the explanations of the universe that are far more unlikely than anything Boltzmann proposed. Modern science has until very recently been unalterably opposed to the biblical idea of God's creation of the universe out of nothing. Modern science has therefore been pagan in its orientation, as dedicated as Aristotle was to the idea of the eternality of matter. No longer. The doctrine of creation out of nothing has reappeared, accompanied by a concept of decreation into nothing. John Gribben summarises, quote, Perhaps cosmology really is a branch of particle physics, for according to one idea that has progressed over the past ten years or so, all the way from being thought of as a completely crazy to the near respectability of being regarded merely as outrageous, the universe and everything in it may be no more and no less than one of those vacuum fluctuations that allow collections of particles to burst forth out of nothing, live for a while, and then be reabsorbed into the vacuum. The idea ties in very closely with the possibility that the universe may be gravitationally closed. A universe that is born in the fireball of a Big Bang, expands for a time, and then contracts back into a fireball and disappears, is a vacuum fluctuation, but on a very grand scale. Unquote. As he says, this idea can be traced back to Ludwig Boltzmann. Now it has begun to catch on. Catch on to what? To what is this theory hanging on? It is a vacuum theory for periodic vacuum worlds spun in the minds of scholars who do not want to face the biblical cosmology of the creation of the universe by God. They want to avoid linear history to such an extent that they are willing to fuse pagan cyclical theories of time with endless, impersonal, purposeless creations out of nothing and destructions into nothing. But then what happens to the first law of thermodynamics, that matter-energy is neither created nor destroyed? Atheism's universe is coming unglued, along with atheism. The Communist Position Cyclical History One scientist adamantly rejects Claudius' theory of heat death. Soviet scientist I.P. Bazarov. This is understandable. To say a good word for Clausius in the Soviet Union is a first step in a trip to the Gulag Archipelago. Frederick Engels, the co-founder of communism, was a bitter foe of Clausius' theory. As I have argued elsewhere... Marx's conception of time seemed on the surface to be linear and therefore Western, but at bottom it is a cyclical view. There is nothing in Marx's system to explain why the future communist society will not fall into alienation again and begin another cycle of historical development from communism to slavery to feudalism to capitalism to socialism, and finally to yet a higher state of communism. With Engels, the commitment to cosmic cycles was explicit. It was the de- foundation of his book dialectics of nature which Bazarov feels compelled to cite in his textbook as if it were a serious work of science in the introduction Engels summarizes his view of the darwinian revolution open quote the new conception of nature was complete in its main features all rigidity was dissolved all fixity dissipated all particularity had been regarded as eternal became transient the whole of nature shown as moving into eternal flux and cyclical course. But Clausius's theory of the heat death of the universe pointed to a one-time only historical development. Engels rejected any such view in the name of cosmic historical cycles. Open quote, we arrive at the conclusion that, in some way which will later be the task of scientific research to demonstrate, the heat radiated into space must be able to become transformed into another form of motion in which it can once more be stored up and rendered active. Thereby the chief difficulty in the way of the reconversion of extinct suns into incandescent vapour disappears. For the rest, the eternally repeated succession of worlds in infinite time is only the logical complement to the coexistence of innumerable worlds in infinite space. It is an eternal cycle in which matter moves, a cycle that certainly only completes its orbit in periods of time for which our terrestrial year is no adequate measure, a cycle in which the time of highest development, the time of organic life and still more, that of the time of beings conscious of nature and of themselves, is just as narrowly restricted as the space in which life and self-consciousness come into operation." A cycle in which every finite mode of existence of matter, whether it be sun or nebular vapour, single animal or genus of animals, chemical combination or dissociation, is equally transient and wherein nothing is eternal but eternally changing, eternally moving matter and the laws according to which it moves and changes, Thus, the laws of nature are somehow eternally fixed. Yet the total flux of material cycles is equally eternal. So, he concludes the introduction open quote, We have the certainty that matter remains eternally the same in all its transformations, that none of its attributes can ever be lost, and therefore also that with the same iron necessity that it will exterminate on the earth its highest creation, the thinking mind, it must somewhere else at another time again produce it. Unquote. In short, there is no end of time. More to the point, there is no inescapable physical process that points to the end of time, and which therefore points also to the destruction of mankind, the god of communism. The debate over the proper application of the second law of thermodynamics is not simply a neutral scientific debate, for there is no such thing as a neutral scientific debate. It is a debate over cosmology. It is a debate over the origin and final fate of the universe. It is therefore a debate about the existence of God. Engels recognized this, though modern physicists prefer to ignore the obvious. Referring to Clausius, Engels asks what becomes the apparently lost heat. He is confident in his cyclical theory, as he is in his atheism. No wonder that it has not yet been solved. It may still be a long time before we arrive at a solution with our small means. But it will be solved. Just as surely as it is certain that there are no miracles in nature and that the original heat of the nebula ball is not communicated to it miraculously from outside the universe. Unquote. No miracles, please. The universe is a closed system. By humanist definition, it must be a closed system. Jarkey has identified the source of Engels' animosity to Clausius. Open quote. Clausius, entropy, and the heat death of the universe meant one and the same thing for Engels. They represented the most palpable threat to the materialistic pantheism of the Hegelian left, for which the material universe was and still is the ultimate, ever-active reality. Engels made no secret about the fact that the idea of a universe returning cyclically to the same configuration was a pivotal proposition within the conceptual framework of Marxist dialectic. He saw the whole course of science reaching in Darwin's theory of evolution, the final vindication of the perennial recurrence of all, as first advocated by the founders of Greek philosophy, So we find that poor Professor Bazarov must reject Clausius' theory of heat death, and worse, that he must cite Engels as his justification. He notes that, open quote, the reactionary views of Clausius have been the subject of Engels' Crushing criticism. He then cites materialist Boltzmann's theory of fluctuations as a possible alternative to Clausius, reproducing a section from lectures on gas theory. But he then rejects the heart of Boltzmann's theory, namely, the existing equilibrium of the universe. He offers no resolution to the problem. He uses two arguments that have gone nowhere in this century. One, that the thermodynamic principles that apply to a laboratory experiment do not apply to the universe as a whole, an approach taken by the physicist Ernst Mach in the late 19th century in contradiction to his own theory of gravitational influence of the whole universe on all parts. And, two, the appeal to some sort of statistical formula escape hatch without a description of the physical processes that would make the statistical solution possible, Boltzmann's approach. It is an oddity of history that Boltzmann killed himself in 1906, because other physicists kept clinging to Marx's soon-to-be-outmoded anti-atomism theory, yet they both unsuccessfully opposed Clausius. Humanist Versions of Death and Resurrection The second law of thermodynamics teaches that if the universe is a closed system, then the world is wearing out. It is going to die. It is headed for an inescapable heat death. Only if it contracts and becomes a cosmic egg, as Asimov calls it, playfully reviving the imagery of the creation accounts of primitive paganism to explode in another big bang, can the heat death of the universe be avoided. Man either dies from heat death or dies from the crushing weight of being squeezed into the cosmic egg. In short, man is doomed, if the universe is a closed system. What began as an observation of heat pumps in 1824 became, after its rediscovery in 1850, a debate over the nature of the universe. It also became a debate over the nature of time. As and helper remark, open quote, All other the variables with which science is concerned can be increased or decreased, but entropy and time always increase. Entropy can only be decreased temporarily, and then only in a localised region at the expense of a greater increase elsewhere. It is a one-way variable that marks the universe as older today than it was yesterday. Entropy, as Arthur Eddington expressed it, is time's arrow." At the beginning of this appendix, I cited astronomer Sir James Jeans' observations concerning the heat death of the universe. He recognised clearly that the debate is between those who believe in linear time and those who believe in cyclical time. He also recognised the religious impulse of this continuing debate. The science of thermodynamics explains how everything in nature passes to its final state by a process which is designated the increase of entropy. Entropy must forever increase. It cannot stand still until it has increased so far that it can increase no further. When this stage is reached, further progress will be impossible and the universe will be dead. Thus, unless this whole branch of science is wrong, nature permits herself, quite literally, Only two alternatives, progress and death. The only standing still she permits is in the stillness of the grave. Some scientists, although not, I think, very many, would dissent from this last view. While they do not dispute that the present stars are melting away into radiation, they maintain that somewhere out in the remote depths of space, this radiation may be reconsolidating itself again into matter. A new heaven and a new earth may, they suggest, be in the process of being built not out of the ashes of the old, but out of the radiation set free by the combustion of the old. In this way they advocate what may be described as a cyclic universe. While it dies in one place, the products of its death are busy reproducing new life in others. The concept of a cyclic universe is entirely at variance with the well-established principle of the second law of thermodynamics which teaches that entropy must forever increase and that cyclic universes are impossible in the same way, and for much the same reason, as perpetual motion machines are impossible. That this law may fail under astronomical conditions of which we have no knowledge is certainly conceivable, although I imagine the majority of serious scientists consider it very improbable. There is of course no denying that the concept of a cyclic universe is far the more popular of the two, most men find the final dissolution of the universe as distasteful, a thought, as the dissolution of their own personality, and man's strivings after personal immortality have their macroscopic counterpart in these more sophisticated strivings after an imperishable universe. Unquote. Reread that last sentence. It comes to the heart of the matter concerning the fate of matter. The death of the universe is the psychological equivalent of the death of God, for it points to the death of man, humanism's god. Man's environment will have long since disappeared. Nothing will carry on man's work, man's story or man's meaning. Man will not be the judge of himself and the universe around him. The universe dies, and man must die with it. Man, the king of humanism, is in fact nothing more than a cosmic parasite, and his host is dying. This is bad news for all those men whose dream of autonomy from God has led them to proclaim an autonomous universe, closed to God. God alone could sustain the dreams of man by regenerating the universe, even as he regenerates man. But regeneration points to the final judgment. An autonomous man above all wants to avoid the eternal judgment. Better the ultimate despair of the heat death of the universe or the pseudo-hope of a cyclical universe, which will destroy today's man but which will open the possibility of eternally recurring cycles of Big Bangs, thermodynamic dissipation, contractions and Big Bangs. Better eternal cycles than an eternity in hell, says modern man. And for God-denying, God-defying men, this conclusion is correct. It is not an available option, but it certainly would be better than hell. But it is not better than resurrection and eternal life for those people who's God, whom God chose before the foundation of the world to regenerate. Ephesians 1 verses 4-7 Columbia University's astronomer Lloyd Motz gives us science's two op- options, heat death or cosmic crushing. He favours the latter, by the way. Open quote. While it appears that the Earth is safe from galactic catastrophes, it is not safe from the various overall cosmological events that can and ultimately will bring things to an end. An end here does not mean that all matter will disappear, but rather that a situation will occur where the orderly evolution and change that a man sees going on all around him will cease. This will happen either because the universe has run down, like the spring of a watch, or because it has contracted down to a tiny but highly concentrated bit of matter. Unquote. He favours the oscillating universe, as did all the pagans of the ancient world. Somehow being crushed to death gives man hope. For, open quote, man's existence implies that life will occur over and over again, but not precisely as it evolved in the present universe, for the normal fluctuations that occur in all physical systems will change the initial conditions of each new expansion phase of the universe, so that no two phases will be identical. Thus men have, in their own existence, not only the promise of life renewed, but also the promise of almost infinite variety in such life, This is humanistic science's version of hope in the resurrection. This is how he hopes to escape the curse of God, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Cosmic dust will revive itself and it will again bring forth life. Who knows, maybe you will someday become a dinosaur with a high IQ. Such is the logic of the humanist who combines Darwin an ancient man's cyclical cosmology in order to escape the logic of Rudolf Clausius. This is reincarnation without a belief in the human soul. This is madness. Conclusion The only thermodynamics textbook I have seen that at least points to the underlying cosmological issues is Gordon J. Van Wylen's. He is at least willing to ask the inevitable questions that are raised by the equations for the second law of thermodynamics and its physical state, entropy. He is willing to do what the other textbook writers judiciously avoid, come to grips with God. Open quote. A final point to be made is that the second law of thermodynamics and the principle of increase in entropy have great philosophical implications. The question that arises is how did the universe get into the state of reduced entropy in the first place, since all natural processes known to us tend to increase entropy? Are there processes unknown to us, such as continual creation, which tend to decrease entropy, and thus offset the increase in entropy associated with the natural processes known to us? On the other end of the scale, the question that arises is what is the future of the universe? Will it come to a uniform temperature and maximum entropy, at which time life will be impossible? Quite obviously we cannot give conclusive answers to these questions on the basis of the second law only but they are certainly topics that illustrate its philosophical implications. The author has found that the second law tends to increase his conviction that there is a creator who has the answer for the future destiny of man and the universe. Next, consider his comments in the 1973 edition. He and his co-author ask some new questions. Open quote. Does the second law of thermodynamics apply to the universe as a whole? If the second law is valid for the universe, we of course do not know if the universe can be considered as an isolated system, how did it get in the state of low entropy? Then they repeat his original affirmation of a creator, although they do not capitalise the word in the later edition. They raise the relevant question, is the universe really a closed system? As believers in God, obviously they know that it isn't, but they do raise the question, it is the question that must be raised. Modern physics and modern astronomy leave mankind without hope. Bertrand Russell saw its implications clearly. He wrote in 1935, "Some day the sun will grow cold and life on earth will cease. The whole epoch of animals and plants is only an interlude between ages that were too hot and ages that will be too cold. There is no law of cosmic progress but only an oscillation upward and downward with a slow trend downward." on a balance owing to the diffusion of energy. This, at least, is what science at present regards as most probable, and in our disillusioned generation it is easy to believe. From evolution, so far as our present knowledge shows, no ultimately optimistic philosophy can be validly inferred. To overcome this inherent inescapable pessimism of modern Western science, Jeremy Rifkin offers what he says is new hope for the future, but without adopting the Christian doctrines of creation, redemption, and resurrection. The quality of such hope we will explore in detail in subsequent chapters. In summary, 1. The second law of thermodynamics has become a major scientific foundation of modern pessimism. 2. Most scientists fail to speak out on major philosophical issues. 3. Three major views of the world govern all interpretations, power religion, escape religion, and dominion religion. 4. Pessimism concerning the future is common to the escape religion. 5. Humanistic pessimism is acknowledged in principle, but ignored as much as possible by the power religion. 6. Pessimism is denied by the dominion religion. 7. The pessimists want to escape God's judgment, either in history through the rapture, or at the end of time, atheism, mysticism. 8. Those who write on the Second Law seldom mention its implications. 9. The Second Law teaches that the universe is becoming more random, wearing out. 10. The universe is therefore headed for extinction. 11. This has been taught by the physicists who pioneered the laws of thermodynamics. 12. The debate over the second law of thermodynamics is important because of its effect on man's concept of time and final judgment. 13. Some physicists have created incoherent explanations of the universe in order to escape the implications of the second law. 14. The only atheistic alternative to the linear history of entropy is cyclical history. 15. Cyclical history was the outlook of the pagan ancient world. 16. Rebellious men do not want to think about the end of time, for it points to the final judgment. 17. If the universe dies, then man dies. 18. If man dies, there can be no meaning to the humanist's world. 19. The humanist is today without hope. This was first published as Chapter 2 of my book, Is the World Running Down? Crisis in the Christian Worldview, Tyler, Texas Institute for Christian Economics 1988, The Pessimism of the Scientists.